But if you do what the champions do, they realize that perfection is not necessary. And what does matter is that you do the one or two things that have to go right to win. As a matter of fact, the champion's golden rule is, at least by my standards, what I call it, you do the homework and the test is easy. You know, that's how you win gold medals. This is the Beats Working Show. We're on a mission to redeem work, the word, the place, and the way. I'm your host, Mark Wright. Join us at Winning the Game of Work. Welcome to Beats Working. On today's show, have you ever thought about what Olympic athletes do to get ready to compete? I mean, if you think about it, they train for years to compete for sometimes 11 seconds. So how do they get ready mentally? How do they get ready physically? Today's guest, Dr. Jeff Spencer, knows what it takes to become a champion. He knew at the age of seven he wanted to be in the Olympics, and he did it. He competed as a cyclist at the age of 21. But then he realized his true calling was coaching. Dr. Jeff has spent his life coaching people to the highest levels in sports, entertainment, and business. What I learned from him is what short-circuits us in life and work is the same thing that causes elite athletes and performers to fall short. The exact same thing. In the show notes, be sure to click the link to get Dr. Jeff's lesson, How Not to Blow It, right before you win. What I also learned from Dr. Jeff is that to truly be a champion, you have to live a balanced life. He cut his professional workload by 90% at one point to become a better dad to his adopted daughter. But I think the most profound thing I learned from talking with Dr. Jeff Spencer is that champions know they don't have to be perfect to win. One quick correction, I asked Dr. Jeff to tell the story of British long jumper Greg Rutherford. I called him a high jumper. (laughs) For the record, I was a competitive bowler in college, uh, so my bad on that one. But it's a fantastic conversation, and I hope you enjoy. Dr. Jeff Spencer, welcome to the Beats Working Podcast. It's great to have you here. Great to be here. Thank you. So if you know who Dr. Jeff is, you know you are in for a treat. If you don't know who Dr. Jeff is, I'm just going to say right now, put on your seatbelt and get ready to change your life. Dr. Jeff is one of the most sought-after performance coaches in the world. So Dr. Jeff, you've consulted the likes of Tiger Woods, the rock band U2, Um, Lance Armstrong, Sir Richard Branson, the list is a very long one. But I want to start with your personal story because I think it says a lot about how you became who you are today. At seven years old, you decided you wanted to compete in the Olympics. Take us back to that moment and how did a seven-year-old future Dr. Jeff decide I'm going to be in the Olympics? Yeah, well, you know, as a very physical kid, anything involved running, jumping, throwing, bumping into people or whatever, I was uh, first in line for And uh, I was never competitive against other people. It was really exploring a possibility of what could potentially be and to testing the limits. So I was never motivated by trying to show other people I could do something when they told me I couldn't. And actually, the Olympics uh, chose me, actually. I've always been a person that doesn't so much chase my dreams, but I answer the calling. And for sure, the gravity was there between me and the Olympics. And so uh, it showed up and I became a faithful advocate of delivering on the promise of doing my side of it. And because of the amazing angels that I had in my own life to cultivate my mind and my body and my uh, physical readiness and mental readiness to play at that level, 
10 years later, I actually did become uh, an Olympian. Uh, Dr. Jeff, was there a moment that you realized that biking was your superpower? Well, when I was on a bicycle ride with some of the neighborhood uh, boys that were 8 to 10 years older than myself that had joined a formal bicycle club, they asked me to go along for a ride, so I borrowed a bike. And after a 25-mile ride when I was uh, like 9, these guys were all pooped out at 16, and I just felt like I was just getting started. So there was a little bit of a suggestion that there's something awkward about this that we maybe should pay attention to. And that ultimately led to people recognizing that I did have a different, almost surreal physical capacity on a bicycle. And they had enough trust in me to uh, be there to nurture me forward to be uh, ultimately an Olympian. Yeah. So, Dr. Jeff, you had a pretty important mentor come into your life, I think, around the age of 18. How was that a turning point uh, in your life in terms of who you became? Yeah, I actually had three uh, three angels. The first one was my Olympic coach, actually, who I met when I was 13. And he chose me to come uh, at an invitation from him to join his training group, which was only Olympians and world champions. And he said, Jeff, you know, you're here at 13. You're not going to do our uh, training program, of course, I'll tell you what to do. But the reason why I want you here is that I want you to be around the highest level of conversation possible about what it really takes to become an Olympian. And if you have it within you to do that, because I can't put anything into you, but you, if you innately have this, then this conversation will awaken something in you to be able to manifest that potential. Because winning is a learned skill. It's not something that you're necessarily born with. So I owe him a little bit of everything. My uh, second mentor was the person that I met uh, when I was 18, and he was 76, and he was a true Renaissance man. That was a university-trained metallurgist. He was a World War I correspondent in television. Uh, there wasn't television at that time, but in newspapers. He was a Shakespearean actor. He was an Emmy uh, award-winning uh, person that did a documentary about his creative philosophy. He developed an entirely new type of uh, art glass sculpture, so on and so forth. And what he did, he chose me to be his art glass uh, apprentice to help him create his masterpieces. And what he did, when we took our breaks and we took our lunches, he would play classical music to me. He would read the great poets of, uh, throughout the ages to me. He would uh, also share with me um, some of the great moments in history because he said, I need to fill you up on this stuff, which I had a receptivity to that nobody else I knew was exposed to that. And that added a really important soulful component uh, to uh, myself. And then the final uh, angel that I had was uh, a man of great dignity that was resolved if there ever was a human uh, person that had been able to reconcile his humanness. And I always wanted to emulate him and he chose me and I found out later the reason why he did was he was a World War II concentration camp victim wow. exposed to the most you know heinous crimes against humanity you can imagine. but he was able to transcend that and he was able to share that side of me. So those three people were the angels that gave me the assets to be able to compete at the level uh, as an Olympian along with some of the other stuff that I ended up doing. Wow, what a beautiful convergence of, of mentorship, right? Yeah. The gift, how true did, gift. How, how did you become a, a consultant once once you, uh, you know, competed in the Olympics and you know, we're around athletes at a super high level. When did that turn into, I know you, you trained to become a chiropractor, but when, when did people start coming to you and say, Jeff, you've got, to, you've got to help me learn this stuff. You've got something special. Well, there's a genesis of this is that, you know, if you're going to help people at the highest level possible, you have to have done it yourself. You can't read books or interview people and be it. It's not possible. 
So my DNA was uh, and always has been wired towards gold medal mentality and producing things at the gold medal level. So I had that master because I was an Olympian. But while I was becoming an Olympian, I was also uh, completing my um, work at the University of Southern California where I got my BA in sports science. So I knew how to craft a body that could push. I knew how to craft a body that could stay in the game long enough to develop the capacity for creating the most significant number of uh, life wins to create a, a memorable legacy and live a life of purpose uh, and uh, meaning. And so that's why people came to me. The athletes wanted to win gold medals, which have helped over 40 athletes win gold medals. I, uh, the business people came to me and said, well, you must know something about becoming a champion and can you help me become my own champion? So whether it's boardroom, locker room, becoming a champion is the same presence of being and it's the same type of experiential decision-making that has to go right to be able to play consistently at that level. And the athletes wanted to extend their careers and they knew that injury prevention and management was a secret to that. And the business people that came to me realized that they don't want to die of a heart attack or a stroke in their late 30s or early 40s like they said, like they saw their same age counterparts. So they asked me, can I help? So I decided, well, I'm going to go back to school. I'll get a primary licensure as a healthcare provider to be able to manage those myself professionally. And so then I became the guy that, number one, was an Olympian, so I knew what it took to get to the top and stay there. Number two, I knew how to craft the health and the body to be able to make that happen. And I also knew how to prevent injuries and also help people boost their uh, wellness capacity so they don't get sick or injured at an inopportune time. So people recognized in me that we don't need 10 experts that you know, talk to each other and create my program that's undoable, not doable, but we can go to Jeff and because of Jeff's experience in all this, he can understand what I need to do for myself or my team that's unique to us where we can get the most gains in our performance with the least amount of time and effort. So that's how I got the ear of busy people that play really big games that don't want too many people involved in their life to slow it down. They want to be able to make quick decisions quickly about what they need to do to get to the top of their games and stay there. So that's how that all happened. So the concept at the core of your coaching and your work is is human mindset versus the champion's mind. And for our listeners who aren't familiar with that, it's basically the struggle, as you've explained, the struggle between our natural mind and the mind that we actually want to run our lives, right? I, I would say that really, um, to kind of preface this, I would say that, you know, winning big is not an accident. It's a very deliberate outcome of specific actions consistently applied. And my observation is, is that you have to be proficient in five different competencies to be able to make that happen. The first of which is the champion's mind. You have to be able to make really good decisions consistently under pressure. The second rung on the ladder is you have to be able to control your day because if you can't control your day, you can't control your life. If you can't control your life, well, then you can't produce your best legacy or live your best life. The third thing is, is that you have to understand that you know, winning is a learned behavior. It's a learned skill. And it's something anybody can learn, but that's not something that's commonly part of any curriculum. The fourth thing, competency, is you have to be able to peek around the corner and see what's coming. Because a lot of the things that blindside us and take us out of the game or opportunities that show up that can exponentially take us to the next level, we're not ready for. Because we just don't know how to look around the corner and read the tea leaves as to what's coming. And then the fifth part of that is you have to be able to carry momentum which is the most prized commodity in the three-dimensional space that we live in. So going back to the champion's mind, yeah, there's an ongoing conflict for us as humans because we have a human nature way of responding to life. It's like a biologic 
hardwiring where our first initial inclination at every moment is to make sure that we stay in a place of survival. And survival, survival decisions cannot get us into the winter circle because they're not calibrated towards that. And therefore, we also have just a strong impulse and a desire to live a life of distinction and contribution. We all want to win our gold medal and become our own champions, but we can't get there through our innate human survival instincts or impulses. And that's why we have to cultivate a champion's mind. And the thing that I will say is that the champion's mind has to be continuously applied to be able to keep the gains in our control over ourselves to win as much as we can to showcase our capacity. It's not something that you get that self-perpetuates because it's not a natural state of being. Hmm. Natural state of being is survival. You can't become a perennial winner if you're engaging life through the perspective of survival. So this struggle between the natural mind and the champion's mind, I mean, I'm thinking back to childhood and just very pronounced, even even as a kid, you're afraid to to ask someone to dance at the roller uh, rink, you know, <laughs> you a, a, to, to skate, same thing. you know, and you're afraid in, in high school to ask that person out because, oh, they'll never say yes to going out right. on a date with me. I mean, this is something that's very deeply rooted, isn't it? Well, yeah, it's actually biologically hardwired. Hmm. I mean, we think that it's programmed into us and we're born as a blank slate. That's not true. You know, we have a reflex capacity that's hardwired into us that's survival-based. I mean, there's got to be something faster than we can think to jump out of the way of an oncoming car or slip on the ice and your hand knows where to put itself. You know, those are examples of a physical biology that are survival-based that are faster than we can think. It's the same way with psychological survival. If somebody says something to you that you're taken by surprise by, you don't like it. How many times have you said something faster than you can think and you thought it was going to be awesome and it turned yeah. out just absolutely to be a disaster? So we can see that there is something that's a biology that we didn't ask for that's hardwired into us that's there to support us in survival. But if we respond to life thinking that we're going to live a life of excellence coming from our survival side, it just is not going to happen. So there has to be this override by our drive and our desire to become our own champions. It's the only way that it could be done. So you've consulted some of the top athletes and leaders in the world. And I'm just curious, where do those conversations begin? And is there a common block that sort of, you know, that you see over and over? The conversation begins as early in life as possible so that we set people up to understand the differences of uh, our human biology impulse to survive, which can't really take us to where we would like to get to. And from those conscious decisions and actions that are applied based on what history tells us to be true, that if done, will take us to where we want to get to, because many of those things are very contrarian and seem unorthodox to the general way that humanity looks at certain things, but historically tells us that it just happens to be what it is that may seem a bit contrarian. And that's where the courage comes into it. You know, Do you really have the courage to do what the herd doesn't do that history has proven to get us to where we want to go because you're, you're risking a certain level of um, societal uh, exclusion, you know, or being ostracized from the group because you're different. So that's where the courage part comes into this. And through application over time, we start to realize that there's a whole other capacity that we have to really take control of our life, to be able to steer it deliberately and purposely towards our bigger future where we can perform at our highest level in the areas of expertise that, that we're naturally born with. So I heard you say in an interview, when the stakes get high, the human mindset asks 
what do I have to lose? And the champion's uh, mind says, what do I have to gain? And I think there's a, a story that you've told that really captures this. You consulted a, a high jumper from the UK named Greg Rutherford, who was already performing at a really high level, but then started to melt down and they called you. And uh, I think this story is so fascinating because we assume that people at that level are sort of just have this iron clad mind that is, is not susceptible to this stuff. Now, we, we all have the conflict 24 hours a day. We feel the restlessness of being uncertain, then confident. Should I do this? And then should I do that? I mean, that's the, the battle that goes on every day for control over our decision making between our survival, hardwired biology impulses and our champion's deliberate mind that can apply the things that have to go right to win your gold medal. And so... Greg was leading the world championship. They came to me two and a half weeks before the Olympic final and said, Greg's melting down. What do we do? He's got the best coaches. He's got the best equipment, has the best uh, sports psychologist, but yet he's starting to mentally unravel. What do we do? I talked to Greg and I said, Greg, this is really simple. You need to understand something here is that you're here at a place, once in a lifetime opportunity, and you're starting to mentally unravel. You're disconnected from your body. But this is not difficult to uh, unravel here. We still got two and a half weeks to do this, but you better listen up and listen to what I have to say. And I said that you're now operating up, up from your fear-based survival biology. And you guys mistakenly think that you have to put in a perfect jump to win the Olympics. And so you think the way that you deal with that is that you need to make a contingency for every possible scenario that could happen. And when you do that, you can put in the perfect jump. But we know your fear-based uh, mindset, human mindset, will always convince you that there's a detail that you haven't found that you put all of your confidence in that will help you and you must have to be able to win the Olympic gold medal. Therefore, it probably doesn't exist, so you've already lost. But if you do what the champions do, they realize that perfection is not necessary. And what does matter is that you do the one or two things that have to go right to win. And in this case here, Greg, you just need to go back to the warm-up that you're used to doing because your body's familiar with that. When your body is around something it's familiar with, then it feels comfortable and it's going to perform for you. But when you start to change things, you start to shorten up your warm-up, you try to make it longer, then the body gets confused. It doesn't know what to do. So it runs into the cave. It rolls the rock over the front. It doesn't want to come out. It doesn't want to play. So just please go back to your normal warm-up. And the second thing is, the first four steps to your run-up determine the speed to hit the board to get the lift to win the long jump. That's all you need to do. Those two things, instant gold medal. Wow. I said, are you kidding me? I said, no, I'm not. We're looking at historical evidence and data that tells us that that's true. I know it's hard to embrace it because your fear-based survival impulses are telling you another story, but it's not going to work. And so I said, this is all you need to do. You either trust me or you don't. The choice is yours. He said, well, I trust you, sort of, but I'll do it. I said, well, that's great. And so... Um, you know, two and a half weeks later, he did only what I requested of him. Boom, won the gold medal, uh, which is amazing. Cried his eyes out, you know, on the podium getting his gold medal because, you know, he fought the fight that we all fight day in and day out. Are we going to go live a life based on our fear, let it control our decision making? Or are we going to take control of this and apply what has to go right that history tells us it has to go right to become our own champion, start to believe in ourselves and start to do these repeated uh, successes that, create a massive legacy that can also teach other people how it's done. And then Greg went on to win the world championship. He won the Commonwealth Games. He uh, won the European Games. He won everything that there was to win. And the single reason why he did it is that he had the courage 
to embrace the champion's mind and do the two things that had to go right rather than stress about everything that could go wrong. That's such a great story. Great and story. It, as you were telling that story, Jeff, it, it reminds me of even like uh, football teams, they'll get to the Super Bowl and instead of just like handing it to the best running back in the league to, to run in for a touchdown and win the Super Bowl, they try a new play. Right. And Classic. how often do we change Classic. our game plan when the stakes Classic. are so high? Classic. As a matter of fact, uh, Mark, if people want to go to www.drjeffspencer.com and one of the gifts that I give people is a paper that I wrote about this very thing. It's like, how not to blow it just before you win. That's exactly <laughs> the name of what it is. Please take the time everybody to get that. I think you'll find it valuable. But because I see this all the time, you know, when people are prepared to do it, and literally how you prepare is how you perform. But when you start to make it too important, you start changing things, it isn't part of your fabric yet. And because it's a fear-based um, impulse to try to do something different, to try to get the advantage rather than just to show up and do what you're prepared for. This is actually human nature and it's completely predictable that this would happen and it should not happen at all. But sometimes what we know people say about history is that we don't learn anything from history. No matter how many times you try it, it's never going to work. It never has worked and it never will work this time. Jeff, I'd like you to speak directly to maybe a business person listening. So let's let's think about a scenario where the stakes are really high. Let's say they're walking into a sales meeting and they're pitching a huge client that if they land this account, it's going to change the trajectory of their life and the company. And so stakes are super high. What's your best advice to that business person when they start looking at, okay, what do I do? I've got this huge, huge thing and I don't want to blow it. Well, the first thing is to, to recognize why are you there? I mean, if the client didn't think you had something of value to them, you would not even be asked to be there. So you have to ask yourself, you know, what do I think about this? Well, that's a question you should ask yourself. That's what I have my clients do. Well, I think that I have the solution to their problem and that's why I'm here. You know, okay, great. Well, we sort of demystified the apprehension on that side of it. The second question to ask is like, well, who am I? Well, I'm qualified. I've been in the business for 30 years. Nobody knows the business like I do. Again, I can help this person. They're lucky to know me. And then the final thing is, is that when the door opens and you have to enter the room there, you just think about the first thing that you have to say. Don't try to go through all the scenarios or possibilities like Greg was confronted with hmm. to win the gold medal. You only think about what's the one word that needs to come out of your mouth that has to go right where then all of your preparation can be spewed forward to be able to crush the opportunity because what you've got is already there. It's just your job to get out of the way. It all starts with that first domino that falls, then everything else rolls off the tongue. That's great advice. Um, Dr. Jeff, I think we all have a perception that successful people are not susceptible to falling victim to the human mindset. But as you just mentioned, we, we really are. You were hired by one of the most iconic rock bands in history, you too, because they were having some problems. And, and uh, I'd love you to tell that story and, and what was the key to what you taught them. Well, first and foremost, that there are no exemptions or free passes from the battle that we all fight. If you really saw what happens behind the scenes is that every prolific achiever that does something of high significance, especially uh, in the presence of other people, like you too, for example, there was 131 concerts over 18 months. It was a world tour. I mean, that's a lot of time and a lot of effort. I mean, you have to train for that like you would for the Olympics. It's that 
vigorous and every concert that you do everybody expect you to show up and play as if it were your first uh, you know concert yeah so again that's a matter of number one not feeling the compulsion to try to overpair to be too perfect to perform up to everybody else's expectations you have to really manage your energy over time you have to learn to not obsess about certain things that really don't matter uh, you need to trust in your preparation to be able to deliver. Uh, you have to be a great teammate and know how to communicate with your band uh, members. We need to give allowances and grace to ourselves and others for shortcomings when fuses get a little bit short in claustrophobic circumstances like that. We have to make sure that we keep our eye on the bigger picture of why we're here and what it is that we need to do to get to the promised land. And those are things that the prolific achievers and champions do. They, they never lose sight of the bigger picture. They know how to manage themselves and manage other people. They know how to show up and be of service to others. They, they know how to be a trusted teammate. And when we apply those things, then we have the glue that creates harmony in the system. And when we have harmony in the system, meaning all the people that are involved in this, then we get a predicted exponential output from everybody. And that's really the secret to this. It's not about working harder. It's about how do we have the fewest number of things in the system that are synergistic and compatible that when there's harmony in the system, again, leads to exponential output. So that's the magic recipe right there. Yeah, if we think about the the outcome as opposed to the process, we're thinking I've got to hit hit it out of the park as a performer 130 plus times over this tour. But what you got them to think is what I'm hearing is to what are the things that we have to focus on that will actually lead to that outcome, right? Yeah, it's all about trusting your preparation because if you do the preparation correctly and you have a body of evidence that informs you that you can do it, then you can do it. It's just, again, your human mindset. When you make it too important, then you start making contingencies for everything that could go wrong, and mm -hmm. then you become a victim of your own prophecy. And so the evidence is all in, as a matter of fact, the champion's golden rule is, at least by my standards, what I call it, you do the homework and the test is easy. You know, that's how you win gold medals. You do the preparation and when you know you're ready and there's a body of evidence that you can do it because you've already demonstrated it, then you have to trust the preparation and not try to restrict it and control it too much when it comes time to executing what has to go right, like in real time. Speaking of that body of evidence, when I heard you explain where confidence comes from, I was really intrigued by that. You say that confidence doesn't come from visualizing because <laughs> I struggle as a golfer and I've done a lot of visualizing, but if I haven't put in the practice, my shot doesn't go where it wants to. You say that confidence comes from demonstrating what has to go right so that you have a body of evidence to trust. Correct. That That's is correct. such a great thing to think yeah. about. Well, you can kind of see how the human mindset makes a makes us think that visualization is it. Mm. I mean, but you know, practically speaking, we look at it, we know that it doesn't. And no matter how much you think that it does, it, it's still not. It's a component of it for sure. But, you know, again, that's why uh, the prolific achievers spend more time in preparation than they do actually in performing because they know that they need to get themselves out of the way when it comes time to performing and let the performance execute the skill. And that's a hard thing to do because you're asking yourself to give up control, which is very hard for people to do. And that's one of the reasons why you need my paper, you know, how not to blow it just before you win. It's, it's just humanly classic. Yeah. 
Um, one thing that I love about what you stand for, Dr. Jeff, is um, you really do um, live a balanced life. And, and I heard you say in another interview that one of the most rewarding things that you've ever done in your life, if not the most rewarding thing, was to adopt your daughter. When you yeah. and your wife adopted your daughter, she was 10 years old. She was from Columbia. And I was struck by when you were talking about this, you came to the realization that you couldn't have it all all at once. And you came to a realization that if you wanted to be a great dad, something else had to give. And for you, that was work. And that must have been a, a really pivotal moment for you. There's no conflict whatsoever. You know, as I said earlier, that you know, my deal is not chasing dreams, but it's um, you know, manifesting and showing up and answering the call. And that's very easy. Like I've done that in most everything that I've done. And when we adopted our daughter, it wasn't just Columbia. We're talking about the crime-ridden, dirty, drug-infested cocaine capital of the universe where the greatest thug is the one that calls the shots. It's so dangerous where she came from. The Columbia military won't even go close to it. So just wow. to sort of say that you know, she had the most brutal, most obscene first 10 years of your life that I would never wish on anybody. And so when we adopted her, she didn't speak English. We didn't speak Spanish. We had no language. She uh, had no school, so to speak. You can only imagine that at 10 years old. She had a PTSD and ADHD from getting you know, beaten up and abused for 10 straight years. She had uh, you know, severe uh, parasitic uh, infestation of the body just because of the health challenges there. She um, had severe malnutrition for 10 years, and she also had significant trust issues. So this is not kind of an average situation, but my wife and I didn't just want to save a life. We wanted to manifest the potential. And so, you know, I realized because I knew, because I'm used to producing winners and gold medalists, that I need to be a gold medal father for my daughter because that was the promise that we made her. And, you know, Olympians deliver on their promise. It's just the way it is. So I was never conflicted about putting the career aside. A lot of people are shocked by that. They don't understand how I could do it. But it's really quite simple. Is that when you're called into action, you do what's required to finish the job in, in, in a gold medal way. And so I was okay with that. Well, what about your career? Well, what about it? You know, it's like, I'm not going to be defined by my career. It's really about, did I show up? Did I have the courage to answer the calling? And uh, yeah, I, I did. It came quite easily to me, as a matter of fact. And I always felt that, you know, it gives God a bigger, faster way, if it be God's desire to show me a path to a bigger future uh, again and i'm not bartering for anything that's not part of the deal you know it's like you can love anybody i mean that's the first thing you have to understand there, there are no boundaries to that and it, it is a one-way street and you don't expect reciprocity it's not why you do it you know you do it because you know you need to do it and it's the best thing that i ever did and uh if you ever think what you do and say and how you show up uh, doesn't matter adopt a kid that hangs on every word that you say if you want to really see what real change is really all about. So, you know, I appreciate the kind thoughts on this. And I can honestly say that uh, we feel like we're the lucky ones um, in that sense, because, you know, my daughter taught me that, uh, you know, uh, to be a, a perpetual winner, you have to learn how to love. And if you can't love, then you can't access your full potential. If you can't access your full potential, you can't leave it all on the field. And, you know, if you're going to honor your legacy and honor your life's opportunities, then you have to, again, know how to leave it all on the field. I didn't say recklessly abandon 
things and do things that are silly and reckless. I said, you know, you have to be responsible, prudent. You have to recognize that there's only so much time and energy going around. And where are you going to apply that? You know, and so uh, best thing I ever did. And I'm really happy and proud to report that she graduated from um, college, magna cum laude, you know, with honors. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, it's amazing. <laughs> so, yeah, amazing. And, you know, in, in that process of deciding what's important, Dr. Jeff, I think all of us can learn from your advice of you have to ask yourself, why am I doing this? How do I want to show up as a parent, as a spouse, as a worker, most, as a boss, right? That's the most important question you should ask of yourself every day before you start to interface with people, like how am I going to show up? Because my daughter was severely abused and she has to bear the consequences of something that she did not ask for that was imposed upon her by people. And had people shown up differently for her, the scars would be different. And that should be no different for us. You know, we have an opportunity every day based upon, you know, how we show up. Are we going to demonstrate uh, a gratitude and a gratefulness for a pass through this dimension by giving everything that we've got to everybody that we're in the presence of, like unconditionally? I don't mean to say that you give everything to people that don't appreciate it. I'm talking, you know, to those that matter that are within earshot or within eyesight of something that we do that shows extraordinary dignity as a as an option to the world of uh, humanity that we live in today. Uh, are, are we really honoring the process of a pass through this dimension? I think it's important to do that. And probably most importantly is that uh, everything we do uh, represents the potential for demonstrating for other people what's possible in this dimension. And if there's ever, in my opinion, a time in human history where we need beacons of hope, courage, and sanity, it's like now. And it's one thing to read about it. It's one thing to experience it. And it's good for us because it teaches us to not be so uh, contingent upon things outside of ourselves for our own identity or to kind of create our own safety net for life's challenges, but it, it shows us that, you know, we can develop the individual autonomy and the capacity as an individual to hold our own in humanity and also uh, make our own unique contribution that only we can make being one out of 350 billion people that have been on this planet for the, since the first person put their foot on, foot on this earth here. Speaking of unique individual uh, talents, um, I'd love your perspective on on this question. How important is it to know what our natural gifts are? Because when I think about, okay, you know, we tell our kids, get out there in the world and you can do anything you want. And But it, that, that really is predicated on <laughs> you can do anything that you want that you're actually sort of good at and can build on that, right? I mean, help us understand yeah. that. Yeah, well, no doubt. I mean, you know, the human mindset tells you you can do anything that you want. Well, that's not really true. You know, there are physical limitations, there are predispositions to ways of thinking that are just hardwired into it that are certain uh, parameters that can't be transcended. And so, you know, what I do know, what history says is that when we can identify our most important skills, I think that's part of the reason why we're here on this planet is to be able to develop those skills and create a lifetime based on that. And when we do that, we bring the best of what we got to humanity. And that, to me, fills its own bucket. Uh, there's nothing more anybody could expect of us, including ourselves, than to do 
just that, because that's our greatest opportunity to uh, live a life of tranquility of being, because we know we showed up of service and honor to our potential. It uh, also, when we do our best work, um, then it allows us to know that we made our contribution to humanity in a certain sense. We kind of uh, earned our dinner, we earned our good night's sleep when we show up like that. And people that do that generally have a very high degree of uh, tranquility of being. You know, where we get into trouble is where we start to measure ourselves against other people's successes. Hmm. And then that kind of changes the game. But we don't really understand the lives that people are really living behind the veil. And I found that it's generally not what you think it is. And it can't deliver on the promise of honoring our own talents and going and developing those and creating a life platform based on what comes naturally to us. I'd like to ask you, Dr. Jeff, how important self-belief is. Um, I met uh, Russell Wilson's uh, mental coach, Trevor Moad, before he passed away and had, had some interactions with him that were really interesting. And, and he told me one time that, that Russell, one of the shortest quarterbacks in the NFL, actually believed he was harder to sack because his center of gravity was lower, <laughs> lower mm-hmm. to the ground. And, you know, that we can debate whether that may or may not be true. But the fact was, Russell had this incredible self-belief that uh, he, he, and he beat all of the odds in terms of just being this little quarterback from nowhere to being one of the very, very best at what he does. So how, to give us some advice on self-belief and where the appropriate sort of level should live in our minds. Well, the real secret to that is play your own game because that's what Russell did. You know, he was aware of his capacity and every one of us has got strengths and weaknesses. And when we understand that, there's always a best intersection where we can step up and claim our slice of the pie, so to speak, that our assets allow us to be able to successfully engage in. And that's why I say that it's much more important that we always play on our side of the field and we do what we have to do to cultivate our gifts and come from our greatest strength. And when that happens, we believe in the gifts that we were given. We believe in our uniqueness, which is slightly different than the question that you asked me. But I feel like that's probably the more important question to ask because it provides a glimpse of what the solution is that history tells us to be true, that if you intend or desire to live a life of tranquility of being and contribution, you don't get any free passes uh, because we all have to face the same stuff you know, day in and day out. But when we have that alignment, there's a certain level of mind-body-soul connection that kind of believes in a certain sense based on the evidence of ease with which we perform once we've mastered the essential skills here that uh, when I do this, then I can live the best life possible. And we all have to reconcile that at some point in our lives. I heard you say in another interview, and we'll start to use this as, a, as an opportunity to kind of start to wind things down, but I heard you say in another interview, and this was just fantastic, if you want to live a natural life, you don't need to do anything. Follow your whims, follow your emotions, blame other people when things go wrong, indulge in whatever you want and see where that gets you. And I just thought that was fantastic because I think at the heart of what most of us struggle with, Dr. Jeff, is that if we want to be really honest, a lot of our lives we've just been on autopilot, right? Well, autopilot means that we're letting the conversation and impulses from our human mindset, which is biology speaking, it's our survival hardwiring 
to psychologically and physically survive. We're taking our cues from that, which is living a life of extreme safety in fear. And when we live in fear and safety too much, then we have to burn off our anxiety some way, which is to blame other people, to whine about not being understood, you know, so on and so forth, whatever the usual list of complaints that people like that have, victim mentality, so on and so forth. And until we recognize that there is an alternative, which is to cultivate the other side of us that's hardwired into us, and that's the champion mind side of us. The champion mindset is something we can't escape. The human mind is different because a mind is not a mindset. A mind is a living, breathing organism that has a conscious awareness that can evaluate opportunities and circumstances and decide what to do with it. We can edit it. We can store it. We can chop it up. We can archive it. We can collate it. We can transmit it. So you see that a mind is very different than a rote mindset. Hmm. Mindset is like, well, if I say this stuff, somehow it's going to happen. That's garbage. No, it's not. You know, what's going to, whatever you're thinking about, whatever you decide to do is what's going to happen in this dimension. So I think it's really important that we don't mistake mindset, biologic hardwiring for survival with doing the actions necessary to create a life of excellence because they're two completely different things. And to be clear, champions still feel fear, right? Oh, hell yeah. yeah but here's the deal is that what champions know about fear is that fear is actually your friend. Because when you're fearful, it could actually be like, stop, look around. You're not ready to do this. Just take the time to look around. This is a blinking yellow light. I'm giving you a chance to see that you may not be prepared to do this. And everybody's told you that the fear is a thing to be overcome, so you do what's necessary to overcome the fear. Uncle Jeff says, no, you don't do that. Because it may tempt you to do some things out of your own will that can go terribly wrong. I've seen this like only like a million times. You want to stop, you want to look around, you want to see where the danger is. You want to see what you need to upgrade to go from red light, don't do it, to green light, yes, you got the all clear. Uh, fear, the sign of dilated pupils, sweaty palms, increased respiration. Well, those are signs of biologic readiness to put in an extraordinary performance. And in Greg's uh, situation for the gold medal, you better have that because if you don't have that, you're not going to jump at your best. So fear is our friend in certain situations, if we interpret it correctly, it could be our worst foe when we interpret it incorrectly and we are pulled by its strings to do things prematurely, thinking that it's the right solution and it ends up backfiring. Hmm. Um, I'd like to talk just briefly about the importance of not quitting. Um, earlier in my career, I had a chance to interview Jim Whitaker, the first American to summit Mount Everest hmm. back in the 60s. This is before we had any technology to get people up to the top of that mountain. Um, and the first day that they ascended the mountain, one of their climbing partners was killed by a huge chunk of ice. That was on day one, and they forged ahead. And on the day that he summited the mountain, there was a terrible storm at the top, and he knew he had a very short window. Um, his his water bottle had frozen. He had frostbite that had disabled one of his eyes. It, it, he had His oxygen ran out, and yet he and, and his guide went and summited that day. And he just said, I said, you know, I said, what did you do? He said, I just knew that I couldn't stop there. When you talk to some of the best athletes in the world, Dr. Jeff, what, I mean, this idea of not quitting, is that one of the things that really distinguishes them from the rest of us? Actually, it's not. The most hmm. important word that you just said in your explanation was no, huh. because 
knowing is different than believing. There are people that believe that they can do it, but they're still uncertain. Mm. I don't know if I would uh, take a risk on that to be true and go to the summit. But if there is something constitutionally within me and I was the observer of what my soul was perceiving and it said, you're ready to do this and you knew it, you've all, we've all had that experience where we just knew it was what it was and we knew it was what it was because we just knew it. We didn't need to be further informed. So when you feel that, then you could absolutely be absolutely 100% fearless about proceeding forward because you've already been given the premonition probably the insight, the clairvoyance, the crystal ball of that you can actually do that. And so it's not an act of will, it's an act of conscious recognition. And when you know it to the deepest depths of your soul, that's when you're getting the all clear sign to be able to take the action. Huge difference. Wow. That is incredible. Okay. My perception of you, Dr. Jeff, is that your superpower and your love, uh, the thing that you love to do most in lives in your life is to transform other people's lives who then, who then go on to transform other people. Um, I heard you say that, you know, it's on all of us to do something that lasts longer than we do. That's something of value. What's your best advice to everyone listening, Dr. Jeff, you know, in terms of just, you know, when it comes to making a difference, when it comes to leaving our mark um, and that really being our benchmark, right? I would say that the, the, without a doubt, the most important thing you could do is not to decide the value of what you're doing and what you're saying, because a lot of people automatically discount themselves. Well, I can't do that. Nobody's going to hear about this. So they already decide in advance the value of what they're doing and what they're saying. They heavily discount the potential. My suggestion, give you an example, is that, uh, you know, when I was a kid, nine years old, a guy came into the bike shop wearing a, said USA Olympic team on it. When I saw it, I wanted the t-shirt. That became why I wanted to do it. And so I went home, got a box of crayons. I, I drew the guy's T-shirt, and that was my logo. And I was going to do it with my little plan. I was going to be brave, work hard, never make an excuse. And I looked at that every day for 10 years. And he doesn't even remember wearing the T-shirt. So I think the important thing is that when we show up as service and we show up where we're called to be and we give it a very fair measure of everything that we got, we don't decide our value. We develop our skills and what we're best at. We live a life through that then the influence and impact of that disseminates throughout of all of humanity for all of time. This is our unique contribution to humanity. And if you've lived a life like that, then you've lived a life well-lived. So Dr. Jeff, when all is said and done, what is it specifically that you want to be remembered for? Super simple. I answered the call. I was fearless. When I got the call, I showed up. And I deliver the goods. Well, this has been uh, just a real honor for us, Dr. Jeff. Thank you so much for your wisdom and for helping us understand so much about uh, the champion's mind. Um, I love it. I love it. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate that. And just remember, everybody, there's always room at the top for the best. Thanks a lot, Mark. I'm Mark Wright. Thanks for listening to Beats Working, part of the Work P2P family. New episodes drop every Monday. And if you've enjoyed the conversation, subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Special thanks to show producer and web editor Tamar Medford. In the coming weeks, you'll hear from our Contributors Corner and Sidekick Sessions. Join us next week for another episode of Beats Working, where we are winning the game of work.